This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that. eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Art Detective with me, Dr. Yanina Ramirez. I'm going to be your Columbo today, and because we're looking at artworks, there is always just one more thing, sir, to explore. With this podcast series, you will have the images available embedded into the podcast in high definition. So just click on the link. But if you can't access it that way, I'll give you the title of the work we're going to be looking at, and you can put it into your search engine and bring up the image in front of you while you talk. So I am joined in my investigations today by Lars Tharp, dear friend, and you actually have the title of Hogarth Curator, I believe, Lars. I do. I was a director at the uh, Foundling Museum in London, uh, where William Hogarth was himself a, a governor when it was still a hospital for foundlings. Um, and um, and now I'm its ambassador. Uh, I rejoice in the title of Hogarth Curator. Hogarth Curator, what a title. And who better, therefore, to look at an image that, that's really fascinated me for a long time, Hogarth's Gin Lane. Date, 1751. Yeah. And I'll give a bit of background. We've got the um, the dimensions. Uh, it is about 35 centimetres by about 30 centimetres. It's an etching and engraving on paper. And as I said, if you want to look at the image along with us, type Gin Lane Hogarth into the search engine and it should come up in front of you. It is a fascinating image, I think, for me because it is just, uh, to me, very grisly. Yeah, it is. And uh, it, it's a, a good example of Hogarth's uh, moralising. He started off in the early 1730s creating narrative series on, uh, on, in paint and, on, and in print. And uh, even in 1751, he was very, very concerned about the state of London. Uh, it was getting more and more violent. His friend Henry Fielding, who was a magistrate, um, had already written about how bad the violence was getting. And everybody was pointing the finger, surprise, surprise, at the crack cocaine <laughs> of its day. And that was gin. Yeah, yeah. And gin is a serious problem, isn't yeah. it, at this stage? I mean, we're not talking about your nice Bombay Sapphire, are we? <laughs> well, the the gin that you make a gin and tonic with mm. um, is essentially, yes, it, it is the same thing. But of course, uh, very few people, apart from some of my friends, drink neat gin. Um, in the 18th century, it was a neat drink. It was like almost like a liqueur, really, quite oily, very alcoholic. 
And as we see in the print, um, the seller that's uh, in the bottom left-hand corner uh, advertising the fact that gin is being sold there says over the door, drunk for a penny, dead drunk for tuppence, and good free straw for nout. Um, and that was about it. You know, if you were living, if you were very, very poor and living in London in the 1740s, 50s, um, gin was an anaesthetic um, because life was so pretty grim uh, that um, gin was a one way of escaping from it. Yes, the account is it's copulation and alcohol are the only things to distract the poor at this stage. <laughs> Yes, now there's a thought. <laughs> <laughs> but I must say, I'm absolutely delighted as well because we have got in front of us a version of the print. You've got a collection of the prints here. It's so nice to be up close with a, a proper uh, replica size version of the print. Yeah. It, but this is later, isn't it? This is an 1840 version, did you say? Well, the whole collection is of prints that have been run off uh, in the early 1800s, yeah. Uh -huh. um, but the version you see here, um, which is much darker than the earlier 1751 print it is almost certainly exactly as it appeared when Hogarth reprinted it eight years later in 1759 um, because it was still a problem and Hogarth was issuing these really as a sort of as a social do-gooder he was trying to show this is how evil how insidious this drink is and of course the companion to this is Beer Street yes you've got Beer Street over the page here the lovely crack Oh, the paper turning there. Right. And there is our Beer Street image. Again, very um, very dark, much darker than yeah. the, seven, the 51 version, but uh, but a more positive scene. I want to think about Gin, um, gin Lane in, in particular yeah. to begin with, because I think that what's going on there tells us an awful lot about London at the time, the, the problems that were taking place. Hogarth creates these prints as a pair doesn't he and he wants that they come after a series of moralizing prints that he's he's been developing from paintings at what point in his career does he do these then well he was born in 1697 and uh, he starts off as a an apprentice silver engraver because of family circumstances um, but he clearly is not happy doing that he's he's got you know he's driven by talent and he takes up night classes with James Thornhill. He elopes with James Thornhill's daughter. <laughs> um, by this time, he, he he's he's starting to paint in the late 1720s. And very quickly, in 1732, he creates his first, what he calls, modern, modern moral subject, the Harlot's Progress. Now, am I right in thinking he develops sequential art. This was something yeah. I read. So he's basically the godfather of comic books. <laughs> well, not only, Janina, of comic books, but of television and film. Oh, yes, of course. I mean, uh, you know, it's no accident that uh, on the site of his studio in Leicester Square, today we have a cinema. Wow, that's perfect, <laughs> isn't it? That's perfect. But it's uh, that fascinated me. And of course, uh, we see these, these narratives in art, Western art, before Hogarth. But he really designs these sequences that are to be read in order, that tell you a whole story. So the Rake's Progress, the Harlot's Progress, those sets, they take you from sort of the downfall uh, right the way through to the death and yes, destruction. Yes, well, in the case of the Harlot, 1732, you, you, you've got a young lady, a young woman arriving from from York on the York stage. I didn't and know she was from York. She was from York. I hate to say it, it's well known for supplying young ladies. <laughs> for young hearts. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, she arrives on the stage. She's intercepted by a madam. 
um, who's already pockmarked, you know, she should have seen the signs there. And she's installed with a sugar daddy who um, looks after her, but she is obviously not getting enough from him. So she takes a young lover, and that's that's the beginning of the fall. She kicks over the table with, with uh, posh porcelain on it. That's what got me interested many, many years ago. And she then, the decline starts from that moment on. You know, the falling table is a pre-echo of the fall of the harlot. Uh, and the, and it goes through a series of, of a total of six images. And at the end, there she is lying in her coffin. That was Hogarth's debut as a, if you like, a narrative series uh, creator. Uh, he painted it first. Mm. And um, because he trained as a silver engraver, he then engraves it. And thereby, and this is the real revolution, because he's got the skills to engrave, um, whereas a, an artist would have to have sold all of the painting, then get painting again, Sonny. Uh, but because he's running off, I think, a thousand editions, sorry, a thousand versions of, of, of Harlot, he makes a thousand pounds. So that he's able now, from now on, from 1732 on, he is able to sustain himself and his new wife um, because he's got an income. And that is really the rest of the story of Hogarth, right up until his death in 1764. He is a an independent artist who can do what he wants, who can, uh, can visualise London as he sees it, and to entertain and moralise at the same time. It's a very interesting uh, balancing act. Mm. He goes then to Rake's Progress in 1735. He consolidates his earnings by uh, getting the Hogarth Act, the first Copyright Act, passed through. Yes, that's interesting, isn't it? It's the first Copyright Act for artists. That's correct. And for visual material in general, I yeah, think. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, and it's it's it guarantees what, what had been with the Harlot's Progress, you've got pirates down the road, who the moment they bought one set of prints, they'd be out there re-engraving their own version. And there was nothing to stop people doing that. And Hogarth and other artists got together and said, no, we must stop this because there is already a, a, a copyright act for, for texts. We must do the same for, for artists. And that really consolidates this the first modern artist uh, in in England and arguably probably in in, in the world. Yeah, he's he's a real a trailblazer in, in yeah. the in the in terms of being able to convert his art to money yeah. through the printmaking. Because it, uh, this is the rise of the print, isn't it? This is the the period where we really see a hunger for this sort of printed material throughout society. Art yeah. is no longer simply the preserve of the super wealthy. No. Everybody can have a bit. And yeah. and I mean I was intrigued. He was a member of the Rose and Crown Club, which yes, this 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 was fascinating. I was doing a bit of reading. So you've got Tillemans Tilleman William Kent, uh, Risback, these are these big names. And Hogarth was one of them. And, of course, this connection with Freemasonry as well. So oh. I was intrigued about this idea of artists pulling together, having a, a greater uh, connection across the mediums, so between paint and sculpture and architecture and print, but also um, this idea of trying to bring about social change because he also interacts with um, with authors, doesn't he? And he when, when we get to Gin Lane... This is not just an, an image. This is not just an artwork. This is something that's part of social transformation, isn't it? Yeah. Um, he His great 
his great decade for painting, just to sort of see where the phases of his life, comes in, in 1745 with marriage a la mode. Mm. That is another modern moral subject. It's a couple getting married. He's got title, she's got money. And, uh, and the whole story is how the whole thing goes very badly wrong. By, by then, Hogarth is already involved with the foundling hospital. All right. Give, give, a, bit, give a bit of context yeah, on the foundling well, hospital, though. Well, uh, let's just... Uh, <laughs> In the, in the late 1730s, William Hogarth um, volunteers to paint the two great walls on the grand staircase of St. Bart's Hospital free because mm -hmm. he cannot bear the thought that the hospital trustees are going to give the job to an Italian <laughs> oh. and pay him. You know, oh. So Hogarth says, I'll do this for free, which gives you some idea of how reasonably well off he must have been to do this. These are huge, these canvases. So he's already involved in charitable works. That's, that's the important thing. And at some stage around that time, he must have got to know um, Thomas Coram, the great saint of English charity, an amazing fellow. Um, and Coram is trying to set up England's first home for abandoned babies or babies at risk of being abandoned, foundlings. And this is a serious problem, isn't it? Because there are many, many children yeah. that are being abandoned at this stage. Yeah. London is growing. I mean, it goes from half a million in 1700 to a million by the end of the century. Uh, young women are being abandoned um, in the natural course of things. I mean, young men are being press-canged into the Navy. So the sorts of social ties that you would have expected them to have enjoyed in more rural communities, as London becomes a cosmopolitan, um, anonymous city, women are the victims. They are abandoned by men for various reasons. Uh, and they are uh, having a child or being pregnant is almost a death sentence, both for the woman and the child. So Coram, who spots these bodies of babies abandoned in the street, says, we've got to do something about this. Um, and it takes him 17 and a half years, he, he records the half, you know, uh, to, to succeed. And by the end, he is, um, he's got Hogarth on board. Hogarth um, devises the subscription form for people to uh, donate to this uh, charity, this new charity. Uh, but above all, Hogarth and we shouldn't ignore this. Hogarth is a great portraitist. Yes, yes, yes. And 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 Hogarth says, "Okay, Thomas, uh, you're going to have a lot of walls in this new institution. Let's have some art, mm. and I will paint you a cracking portrait of you." So Hogarth paints a full-length portrait of Thomas Corey. Oh, it is a cracker, isn't it? It is it's the amazing. the greatest portrait of an Englishman by an Englishman. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it's a wonderful portrait. Go and see it. Those of you who are listening who haven't been there, the Foundling Museum has that portrait. And stand in front of it and gaze into the eyes of Thomas Coram. And and I can guarantee you it'll it'll hold your gaze for a long, long time. Anyway. There's real benevolence and humanity in the in the in the image. But I think what's what's beautiful as well is this idea that Hogarth wants to improve the lives of these children yes. through art. And yes. he writes about art and beauty, doesn't he? He sees art as as something that can fix and improve and make the world better. Yes. Well, he comes out of a very literary tradition. You know, he he uh, he just overlaps with Alexander Pope. Uh, you know, the moralists are, are already well ahead of Hogarth in print. Uh, Jonathan Swift. Um, and 
uh, and 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 so he 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 clear he shows that he has a charitable impulse. He's not just not just an artist on the make. Mm. Uh, he's somebody who's interested in the world about him and is prepared to make statements about it, not just to take the the money like. Joshua Reynolds does later on, yes. Not Ooh. our favourites of the... Get the, uh, get the knife, get the knife into Joshua Reynolds. As, um, no, well, uh, he got the knife into Hogarth, uh, didn't he? So. so we're getting the we're revenge. Getting the- <laughs> so anyway, so he, so we see him in getting involved with the hospitals um, and, it, and, and this actually does work to Hogarth's own advantage. This is what we would call enlightened self-interest. You're right, absolutely right. He's a Freemason. And of course, through the Freemasonry network, which is also charitably inclined, um, everybody was a Freemason. Mm. I mean, Freemasonry, although it claims to go back to the Temple of Solomon, um, was a relatively new thing in London. 1720s is really when it starts. So Hogarth is there in the first wave. His father-in-law, Sir James Thornhill, is a Freemason. All the people, all the males he paints are Freemasons. Oh, I didn't know that. Uh, well, more or less. Yeah. I mean, you know, anybody who was anybody in London in, in the 1740s. And, of course, they are the people who eventually become signatories to the founding hospital. Yeah. So by helping Thomas Coram out to create this much-needed institution. Hogarth, by the way, creates his own personal art gallery. Mm. He tells all of his chums in the painting fraternity, we've got an art gallery, because there has been no public art gallery in London until then. And um, the charity benefits, because it draws people in to come and see the art, um, it draws them into pay, and so that you've got this wonderful parallel of, of 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 artists helping themselves, but also helping society. Yes, exactly. I was just thinking this this ties us perfectly back into our images, doesn't it? Because at the point when he is making these, they are going to be distributed publicly, aren't they? Now, yeah. okay, so they cost a shilling each, is that yeah. right? And that's not the sort of thing that everybody is going to be spending their money on. But it certainly does bring it out from the upper classes into the hands of maybe the middle class. Yes. And Hogarth thought, well, first of all, to put it in, in context, the average labourer around that time was getting seven shillings and sixpence. What's that in? Uh, that's, uh, oh, gosh. can you? Do a quick oh, conversion? I can't do it in modern money. <laughs> uh, it's about 32 pence or something like that per week. Yeah. Um, and Hogarth was thinking, well, if the apprentices can't afford this, which they can't, uh, nevertheless, the 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 masters will exactly and, and they could distribute them discuss the yeah. images and and they are being sold in coffee shops they're being sold quite widely to people aren't they and the intention in this this pair of images is to highlight the troubles of gin and we've yeah. got to put gin in a bit of context here haven't we because there's this relationship with france that is increasingly strained uh, wine is no longer being imported and drunk in the quantities it was so gin is seen as a good english version and in the run-up to to the production of this print for those decades before everybody is distilling gin aren't they it gets to the point where one in four households in certain areas is distilling gin it is incredible to uh, look at any statistics i think the one that springs to mind i think is it 7040 they estimate that um there were what seven thousand households in london Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Hello, this is Danny Pellegrino, host of the Everything Iconic podcast. And I'm here to tell you all about Splash Refresher because hydration is mandatory, but boring is not. Now, I love my water, but if I don't spice it up, I'm not going to finish what I took out of the fridge. That's why I love my Splash Refresher, which is flavorful, delicious, bright, hydrating, and zero calories. The wild berry flavor is my fave. No, wait. Is the pineapple mango flavor my fave? You know what? All five craveable Splash Refresher flavors are my fave because they're so delicious. So get hydrated and enjoy it with Splash Refresher. Uh, and that they are distilling two and a half million gallons of gin in one year. In one year. So, you, I mean, I made the comparison with crack cocaine. It's actually, the more one thinks about it, the more relevant that is. And, and Hogarth, in his... In his in his uh, preface to these prints, he sa- he's aiming it at the lower classes. He says that the lower classes is an interesting phrase because, of course, you know we at that stage we are only talking about the emerging middle classes. So, so I think Hogarth, uh, but he is he is certainly not aiming it at the aristocratic classes. Who well, are- he, marriage a la mode. He's poked fun at the aristocratic uh, class, hasn't he? And and this does seem to be a redirection of his work towards the mm. concerns of the poor. Yeah. And uh, and it's set in St. Giles. It's set in this, this very rundown part of London where, where gin was an absolute epidemic. It, it, everybody was affected by it. And as you described earlier on, this is not we're not talking lovely, you know, nice purified gin. This is thick, often mixed up with terps mm. and nasty things. It's dangerous. It's very dangerous. And and potentially, you know, in this image, you could see how deadly it is. I'm always drawn to the bottom right-hand corner, that skeletal figure that's uh, that's hunched over on the stairs with the dog, the obligatory Hogarthian dog <laughs> next to him. Well, the dog has given up any prospect of food, so yeah. he's, he's beginning to nibble the ankle of the woman who's obviously stupefied by a drink. She's attempting to take a peck of snuff out of her little snuff box. And in the process, the, the child that she was uh, looking after is, is tumbling, well, it, it, to its death or certainly to its injury in the cellar below. And this isn't all fantasy, is it? Because, um, you know, that looks horrendous. The way that the woman in the middle drops her baby, uh, totally out of it on gin. She's got syphilitic sores all over her legs. And yes, like you say, she's reaching for some snuff. And and it looks like it's something out of a horror. But actually, there was uh, accounts of, of things like this happening, of, of children being... There was one, Judith DeFore, 
1734, strangled her child so that she could sell the child's clothes for gin money. Yeah. And there was there's reports all the way through of this sort of treatment of children, mistreatment of children. So you've got infants, infanticide, you've got cannibalism, the sort of suggestion almost of, look at these these figures halfway up on the left-hand on the side, chewing yeah. on the leg bone yeah, and the dog, with a dog. <laughs> yeah. A dog joining in. And, and then in the background, the only person who's thriving in this regime is the pawnbroker. Mm. And, and, and Hogarth is making quite a serious point here for apprentices uh, because the... Pawnbroker is hanging. He's holding up a bundle of uh, of tools, carpenters' tools, including a saw. And and the the guys at the door are, are, are selling the tools of their trade. The only way they could have made money, yeah. and they're willing to sell those very tools. So in other words, it's a no return strategy. Yeah. They cannot. That once they've gone that far, they've lost any opportunity to pull themselves up. Um, so but that's the, why everything's dilapidated, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, this is the thing. Everything is falling apart. You've got that building over in the top right, which is actually toppling over. The chimney pots are coming off. That's on the, the brink of collapse. Yeah. And everything's in disarray. You can see just in front of that building that the wall has fallen down. And inside, I think that's the barber's shop because I think that pole sticking out is the red and white barber's pole. I think that's a barber who's hanged themselves because nobody wants to keep themselves clean anymore. Well, <laughs> appropriately, the, the barber, you can see him hanging there through the, 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 the dilapidated wall. Um, and, and the building's door, uh, which is actually falling down, you can mm. see the bricks uh, falling, um, holds up this coffin shape because that is the undertaker. <laughs> thriving. <laughs> he, the Undertaker is doing rather well. And if you look on the ground, you can see uh, just over the drunken lady's um, right shoulder, you can see a, a female corpse being put into uh, into the coffin mm. uh, and a man with a cross just doing the last rites. And just above her head, the, the head of the, the, uh, the nurse or the mother, um, there is a rather jolly looking, I think he must be chimney sweep, He's got bellows in one hand and then in the other hand, he's got one of the tools of his trade and he's absolutely oblivious to the fact that a baby, presumably from the dilapidated <laughs> bill, has fallen out of of the building impaled. as is impaled on <laughs> on on his stake. He has got a yeah. Uh, he he looks slightly uh, crazy, doesn't he? And actually, that idea of craziness, madness, yeah. obsesses Hogarth quite a lot as well, doesn't he? Bedlam and and the the real fear of of actually social de degradation leading to to madness. Hogarth and chaos. Was, was very well placed to make these observations because not only was he a governor of the Foundling Hospital. But he was also uh, governor of various other institutions, including Bedlam. So mm. that oh, I didn't know he was actually connected to Bedlam. There go you go. Okay. Yeah, going back to Rake's progress. Um, uh, yeah, he, you, you, I mean, the final mad scene uh, in Bedlam in the Rake's progress in number eight uh, is built on on what Hogarth himself would have seen. Mm. I should just say that you know, as far as Gin Lane is concerned, there is a, a huge and really quite pointed finger. Uh, it directed to George II. Oh, us. yes, yes. Because this extraordinary structure, it looks like a pyramid, uh, is actually the spire of St George's Bloomsbury, which, if you pass by it today, you'll see it looks exactly the same. This is not a piece of fantasy. This building exists. This is the spire just up in the sort of top left-hand middle section there. Yeah, it's, it's on the horizon, if you like. And the figure on top of that spire 
is George II. And what has he got above his head? Well, Hogarth is making a point. The pawnbroker's balls <laughs> are pointing straight down at the monarch, as if to say, this is happening in your time, in your reign. What are you going to do about yeah, it? Yeah, it's your it's on your watch, Buster. Yeah. How are you going yeah. to fix this situation? Yeah. Because this is a scene of chaos. And and right the way through, I mean, the reason I love Hogarth's paintings and prints is the levels of detail. You could just spend so much time zooming in on particular details. There's there's a couple of foundlings in this, aren't there? Or at least uh, there's there's little girls with the badges on their arms. I think over there. So he's even commenting on on that situation. Um, but but the whole thing is about the fact that from the very bottom up people are broken and the fact they are selling their tools means they're not going to fix it they're addicted to a highly uh, dangerous alcohol and this is not the solution but in the pair of course with beer street yeah. this is proposed to be some sort of a solution isn't it yeah solution being the right word yeah, uh, they're still drinking they're still boozing they're still boozing <laughs> um well what you have here is um, well, the prime character here, I think, is the artist. Oh, the, yes, the street painter, the sign painter, yeah. In, in the top left-hand corner. Well, sign painter, yes, but Hogarth, I think, is saying here is an artist mm. and he's a poor man. His, his clothes are ragged and he's very thin. You know, he's not been well-fed, like, unlike some of the figures below him. He's got uh, Hogarth's easel as well, hasn't he's he? He's got that the famous easel. Sign that he That's uses. right. And... And what's he doing? He's uh, he's he's ignoring the sign that was on there, which is the little square sign is advertising gin, uh, but it's being superseded by the big sign that he's painting, which is the barley mow. Yes. He's advertising beer, and uh, so uh, and and uh, across the way you can see the pawnbroker's balls are already dropping. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, and and below them, there is an altogether much happier s uh, scene of uh, of rather corpulent gentlemen on on the left hand side drinking. Um, the the woman selling herrings. Um, they they look they all look reasonably well to do. And the pawnbroker's shop in the on the right hand margin, you can see the pawnbroker is so badly out of business. Um, he's reaching through his peephole for a. A flagon of beer to keep him happy. By the way, in the window above, another delicious little detail. That box is, of course, a rat trap, uh, and it because it's still in the up position, it has failed to catch any rats because the rats have abandoned the ship. <laughs> There's nothing worth eating Gosh, at the pawnbroker. Gosh, that's fantastic! I hadn't even seen the rat trap. <laughs> yes, yes, because now this is a scene of plenty yeah. of um, industry. Look, they're all busy. I mean, they are resting. They're taking a rest, but they're they're tired from having worked. And yeah. the things they're doing are trying to rebuild London, aren't they? And uh, you, you could see that they've put their tools down to have a big pint of beer. And it's very patriotic it as is, well, yeah. because this gentleman here is holding up a leg of beef. And, of course, beef was... The sort of signpost of, of Englishness. Um, le roast beef. That, le roast beef, that's right. In fact, I used this phrase the other day when I was in French. When somebody asked me where I was from, I said, oh, je suis un roast beef. And, and <laughs> Does it French, still translate? They still get it. Yeah. They still get it. And of course, I'm posing because I'm actually a Dane, but yeah. I thought, well, they'll understand that. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's quite interesting. For a long time in the sort of 19th, uh, even in the 20th century, I had people saying, oh, 
Gin Lane, Bear Street. You know, Hogarth is showing the, the appalling times. But actually, no, no, no. He's showing the good times and the bad times. And beer is good time. And we shouldn't forget that drinking water mm. in London was a bit of a bad idea. Yeah. Um, which is why drinking tea was such a good thing, or coffee, anything that where water had to be boiled. And if you were an apprentice, what did you have for breakfast? You didn't drink water, for heaven's sake, not unless you were crazy. You drank small beer. Mm. A small beer was a sensible thing to do. And you would become... So beer and health were, were well-known um, um, bringers of health. Yeah, and I think it's the contrast, because they're both English products. You can create gin and you can create beer using... English grains but one is so much more dangerous than the other and and it's not a case of lesser of two evils this is a wholesome and and industrious scene this is something that that he thinks is a good thing and Hogarth actually brings about change doesn't he because almost immediately after these prints are released there is the Gin Act yeah which does start to re address this problem doesn't it there have actually through through the mid 18th century there have been a number of attempts to restrict the distilling and the distribution of gin and the gin act that you're referring to i think is the last one in the series of three mm. um and they they basically are, are putting restrictions on the distilling of gin, <laughs> gin yeah. and its distribution um and they're trying to price it out of the market there's a far more complicated thing going on underneath here. It's probably too complicated to get into in detail. Is the whole nature of corn and the corn laws and what do you do with a harvest? I mean, I think Hogarth's attitude would have been that it is immoral to grow grain and to turn it into a lethal drug. And I think that's a reasonably <laughs> sound state of mind to be in. But also he sees the implications of that, doesn't he? Working in the foundlings, working in Bedlam. Oh. And actually that's what his sequential art shows, this this series of issues that come from root problems like what happens to corn and when it gets turned into gin. He does seem to have that that longer sense, but he is very much focused on the issues of London, isn't he? He's a Londoner yeah. through and through, born yes. and raised. Yes, he is... The Charles Dickens of the 18th century in in so many senses. Um, and it's interesting, rather like Charles Dickens, you know, there is constantly this slightly this slight ambivalence. To what extent is he coining it out of being a commentator? And to what extent is he a genuine agitator, a, a genuine wanting to do good uh, journalist? And I think the answer is far more than Dickens, actually, that he really does want to do good. I mean, you know, the biggest series of all that he did aimed at uh, the poor workers was the uh, the series The Industrious and the Idle Apprentice, the two weavers who start off in the same under the same master, one of whom is is just downright idle, and the other one, Francis Goodchild, uh, is is the keenie. Yeah, he wasn't great on names. They're very literal, oh, aren't they? Actually, names? at the Founding Hospital, they actually use the name Francis Goodchild for naming one of the children. There you go. Um, uh, and and yeah, so so you know, this is a, a big uh, project, and Hogarth actually releases it. Rather like Jen Lane, I guess he releases it in in an expensive and in an inexpensive for format. So he is actually aware that some of these are unaffordable to, uh, to 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 some of the apprentices, and he does the same with the four stages of cruelty. Mm. 
Um, not only that, but in the four stages of cruelty, that's a really, really visceral, uh, quite literally visceral series. <laughs> yes, it's all about entrails at the end, isn't it? <laughs> it is. The dog devouring the entrails of a felon who's been hanged and is being anatomized before the gawping public. <sighs> and the dog dips its snout into the awful bucket. I mean, this is the thing. Hogarth <laughs> does satisfy our, our, our desire yeah. for the gritty and the yeah. grim. I mean, I yeah. find some of his, his prints incredibly grim. Uh, yeah. But at the same time, they are remarkable historical documents. I don't think yeah. anything brings 18th century London to life like a Hogarth. No, and I think you have to throw into this mix the fact that, you know, he did well over 200 wonderful portraits of the people of, of these times. And, you know, that we're not just talking about someone who's sort of snarling in his attic. He was a man of the society. He was undoubtedly the most famous artist of the 1740s. It's only as you move towards the end of his life um, when the Rococo is, is 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 sort of petering out and is giving way to neoclassicism, um, when the posh people who've made all their money in sugar and slavery are are now titled and are now wanting to pull up the drawbridge behind them, uh, it's it's then Hogarth is beginning to lose traction on his market. Um, he's being criticised by various people. He makes enemies of people. Um, so that towards the end, uh, he's not the fashionable man about town, artist about town that he had been. But he has but, a great run, doesn't he? And he, he? He was so well known. His art is reproduced. You've been showing me mm. pots and porcelain and and, and you know, this, this idea that he, his images were hitting so many people they were they were the most fashionable things of the time and not only in this country i mean from the very outset the harlot's progress goes over to the continental europe it goes into the great kuperstich sammlungen of uh, <laughs> of uh, of germany and and holland um, if you were you know a german prince you would you you would certainly want the latest hogarth and they go as far as china um, some of the Hogarth uh, subjects that I found on Chinese porcelain, that for that to happen, the print has to be consciously commissioned in London to go on a ship via Rio de Janeiro under Africa all the way up into Canton, then taken cross-country up to Jingdezhen, then painted on a punch bowl, let's say, then taken back to Canton and all the way back into London because... There are clients in London who are so keen on these images. They want them on bowls or on plates or whatever. Amazing. I mean, that is international reach, isn't it? Yeah. He's an international celebrity in the 18th century. Absolutely. He is remarkable. Lars, we could talk all day. We've already talked a lot. There's even more to say about these prints, isn't there? About how they're made, the etching technique, all the skills that Hogarth oh. brought to that. And, you know, we could carry on. We all have to get together again and do some more. But... What a pleasure. I love talking to you. And uh, I'm looking forward to all the exciting things. You're off adventuring east soon, aren't well, you? Well, I'm going off to Penang next week to tell them all about the China trade. And I shall be standing on the shore uh, watching the ghosts of these ships bringing Hogarthian images up to Canton and coming back with 
punch bowls with the midnight modern conversation. Oh, what a lovely way to leave it. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you to everyone for listening. Uh, thank you to History Hit for being behind this podcast series. If you've enjoyed it, you can subscribe to the podcast. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Janine Ramirez. And you can follow me on Facebook as well. There'll be many more to come. Lots more investigations into artworks. But for today, thank you so much, Lars Tharp. Hi, this is Paige from Giggly Squad. And I want to talk to you about Splash Refresher and my water intake. Okay, so you guys obviously know that I'm a hydrated girly. But sometimes when you drink that much water, it starts to just taste bland and you're just like, I need something to spice it up. That's why I love Splash Refresher. It has zero sugar, zero calories, and it's a splash of sweetness. And they come in five different flavors. They're so good. Wild berry, acai grape, pineapple mango, lemon, and mandarin orange. My favorite is the wild berry because I just, I just love a berry. So if you're like me and you're drinking water all day, then try Splash Refresher. It's going to absolutely change your water game and it's good for you. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.